the Blood Covenant. By Rod Anderson. Lesson 1. I just want to read Psalm 24, verse 14. It says, The secret, the secret of the sweet and the satisfying companionship, the secret of the sweet, satisfying companionship of the Lord, have they who fear, who revere, and worship him. And he, God, will show them his covenant and reveal to them its deep and its inner meaning. I want you to listen to that phrase from the Amplified Bible. It says, to those who reverence him, God will show, he said, his covenant and reveal to them its deep, its inner meaning. The word of God, let me just say this as we start again. The word of God is like a gold mine. Um, in the days of the great uh, gold rush in America and California and back in 1849, that's why they call them 49ers, not that you want any California history. <laughs> but the point of fact is that people would walk around and there was so much gold in the area that people would find sometimes little nuggets just literally by the riverbed. There'd be pieces of gold on the side and they'd get very excited about that and they'd collect that gold and you know they'd live off the little that they found. And most of them were quite satisfied in the early days just for that. But then there were other people who realized that if there, was a, if there were nuggets to be found just laying on the top somewhere, that there must be an incredible, incredible, deep, rich deposit somewhere else just waiting for the right people to find it. And so basically, they made the decision, of course, to dig and to dig deep. And that's where the phrase mother load comes in, that some of these people began to dig very, very deep. And of course, they did strike it rich. They found incredible wealth, incredible veins of gold back then. And uh, again, the reason I bring that up is because the Word of God is like, Proverbs says, the Word of God is like hid treasure. Uh, the Word of God is something that you have to dig into. And this is why I wanted to read this first verse here as we start in Psalm 24, Psalm 25, rather. He said, those who reverence him, God says, if you will actually fear me, reverence me, enough to actually, in other words, pursue me, to consider the reality of this, that this is not religion. We're not talking about religion. Remember even the word religion, the prefix R-E means to come again into, to return to something. And L-E-G-I-O-N is a Latin word that means bonds or chains. And actually the word religion means to come again into a bond. Now, let me hasten to say that when the word was first coined, of course, it meant to come into the bond of Christ. But today, if we're honest, religion has just caused a lot of bondage, plain and simple. A lot of people are just in bondage to the form and to the structure, and they don't have any life. This is, again, why we talk a lot about the difference between partaking of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil as opposed to partaking of the tree of life. Some people are so in hot pursuit of just knowledge for the sake of knowledge, and I need you to listen to me as we start here. Some people are so satisfied with just wanting more and more knowledge of the Bible that they begin to award themselves for their abilities to rightly divide Scripture and correctly understand doctrine. But most denominational uh, organizations have started just from that situation. They are people that have become so adept at just uh, pursuing a particular type of doctrine that they protect their doctrine and while they're protecting their doctrine, they sacrifice having the life of Christ that he's made available to each of us. I can see already that you're foggy with me when I say this. In the Garden of Eden, there were two trees, remember, that God said were both there. But he said, do not partake. Don't try to live off of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He said, it's the tree of life, he said, that we're interested in, that you're going to have opportunity to have if you'll just keep in obedience to me. But again, most of the body of Christ, they just get caught up in doctrine. All I'm trying to spit out is this, right as we start. You can know all about the Bible and not have any personal relationship with Jesus Christ whatsoever, is what I'm trying to say. I know many people that can quote a scripture for every topic that there is, but they lack the grace, they lack that something that lets you know that they've actually met the person of Jesus Christ. 
And I try to say this in many different ways, and I know I've probably said it in the other classes as well, but let me just, again, repeat myself by saying, if, if I had the choice of introducing you to doctrine or introducing you to Jesus, I'd prefer to introduce you to Jesus. That's all I'm trying to say, because Jesus is, what is who changes your life, not some doctrine. So in the pursuit of these things, all through Scripture, God will make statements to this effect. He'll say, you know, that there's much more beneath, beneath the surface, beneath the surface, rather, excuse me, but but that the deeper things of God are hidden for a reason. The Bible says that knowledge is hid up for the righteous, not from the righteous. In other words, God has hidden some truths away for those who are going to actually search them out. Uh, the Bible says that everything, is, everything that is hidden, even in the New Testament, Jesus said it this way in Mark 4. He said, everything that is hidden is hidden only as a means to revelation. Everything that is hidden is hidden only as a means to revelation. And the reason I think he does that is I think I've spoken to you about the principle of discovery. It's, remember, if you have a 10-pound note in your pocket, it's worth 10 pounds, but there's something peculiarly more important or more worthy about the 10-pound note that you find along the street. In other words, you've got a 10-pound note in your pocket, you're walking outside, you see a 10-pound note on the street, and you pick it up. Now, that 10-pound note's got something about it because it's one that you discovered. And this is the way it is with the things of God. God has hidden things because he knows that we put more worth, more value on something when we discover it. But a lot of people, again, are very satisfied in just living on surface terms. But again, here the scripture says, to those who truly reverence him and fear him, he will show them. It says he'll begin to show them his covenant and reveal to them its deep, its secret, and its inner meaning. The Bible has a lot of truths I quote this as well a lot in the other courses. Paul said this in Corinthians. He said, when I'm among those that are spiritually ripe in understanding, he said, I'm able to impart a higher degree of knowledge. Now listen to it again. When I am among those who are spiritually ripe in understanding, Paul said, I am able to impart a higher degree of knowledge. And again, there's two Greek words there I speak of, gnosis, G-N-O-S-I-S. Another one is epi, E-P-I epinosis. And it simply means that there's this level of knowledge, but then there's a higher form of knowledge or a deeper understanding. But he said, I'm only able to impart that to those who are spiritually mature, who have made a decision to incline their ears under the things of God. Now, as we begin to pursue this thing about blood covenant, I, I, like I said, I'm just going to talk to you tonight about this stuff. And as we go through these first several pages of lesson one, uh, blood covenant impacted the understanding, the little understanding that I have. This is probably my life message, just in the love walk. But there's nothing that's so impacted my life uh, as this message, uh, this truth about blood covenant. I probably studied it more than anything else I've studied. You know, I've got on tape, I've got, I think I taught 24, 26 hours on blood covenant when we had the prayer school. Uh, let me say this from the beginning, too, as we start. This book uh, called The Blood Covenant by H. Clay Trumbull is the classic um, and we do have a few of these at our, at our offices if you do want to buy them because it's hard to find. But um, this book was written in 1885. These are lectures from H. Clay Trumbull, who was a, a professor of, a, a, of theology and a linguist. And, and the first half of the book really is just hist history. It's about the different ways that covenants were cut, covenants were celebrated, covenants were performed through every single race of people across planet Earth as far back as history can be defined. And I'm just going to paraphrase it now, and, and at some points I'll read some of it, but every time I teach this, I try to read some of it, but I have some people who fall asleep when I read it and others who listen more carefully. Because again, it's just historical fact about how they cut covenant in Norway, how they cut covenant in, in the American Indians, how they cut covenant in different parts of Africa and all across the world. But the thing that when I first read this book many, many, many years ago, uh, it's only in the second half of the book, lecture three, as it says here when it starts this part where it actually begins to talk about, like it says here, the indications of this right in the Bible. But what happens when you begin to read this is, as he says, I'll paraphrase it, but it begins to hit your spirit that every single race that's, uh, that's existed on the planet, as far back as their individual histories can be traced, have some revelation uh, within them about 
the power of covenanting with blood, this, this truth about what happens when you share blood, or they call it the interfusion of blood, and how it always relates to the intermingling of life or, or the intermingling of natures. In other words, as far back as history goes, people believed that if my blood touched your blood, that our lives became one. And, uh, and why that becomes significant is that, as he said and all these others that wrote these things all those years ago, it became very evident that in those days, of course, that there was no way, there's only two ways, they said, only one actual way, they said that every race of humanity, this, the Japhetic race, they call it, the Semitic race, and the Hephetic race, there's, there's three, you know, the three sons of Noah. The only way that they ever could have had this understanding is by very simply, they said something that had to come as a revelation from the Spirit of God. Because, I mean, there were no ways for mankind to communicate across continents in those days, but they had the same understanding about the importance and the depth of what it meant to come into covenant, come into an agreement with one another through blood covenanting. And again, the thing that we're going to discover is in those days in particular, I mean, it was, now forgive me if I start to get a little, uh, I don't know what the word is from the beginning, but it was absolutely, absolutely unthinkable to break a covenant once you entered into it. For two tribes to come into covenant, for two peoples to come into covenant, was an absolute final, that's it, you're once in, never out situation. All through history, of mankind as far back as you can go in every race you can imagine. So again, this, this, this book, this, this thing about covenant gets, it's so important because most of us don't understand that today we have a covenant, we have a covenant with God that it's far deeper, it's a far bigger issue than we understand. And like he said in the very beginning, they say, he said it's very interesting that amongst Bible scholars, they said there's hardly any teaching whatsoever. And in, in fact, today, most Bible colleges that you'll look into, if you look at the things that they have uh, available in their curriculum, you'll find less than half of 1% that have any mention whatsoever, have any courses about the blood covenant whatsoever. And it's incredible when you think about the fact that, like I said, our entire faith is based upon this. But anyhow, we're going to cover a lot of things just in eight hours, like I said. Now I want to read one other verse to you in Psalm Psalm 89, verse 34, and then we're just going to start here. Psalm 89, verse 34, David simply said, well, the Lord's speaking here, but it simply said, I'll read verse 33. He said, Nevertheless, my loving kindness will I not break off from him, nor allow my faithfulness to fail or to lie and be false to him. Verse 34, My covenant will I not break or profane, nor will I alter the thing that has gone out of my lips. Verse 35 goes on to say, Once and for all have I sworn by my holiness, which cannot be violated, I will not lie to David. But again, it says here, My covenant will I not break. God is really, really serious about this thing about covenant. Now on the outline, if I can just begin to read here. By way of introduction, we put, I just put it this way. The Bible is indeed a record of covenants. And, uh, we will be able, as I said, we'll be able to accomplish, excuse me, we will be unable to accomplish what God asks of us without the understanding of covenanting, and particularly blood covenant as seen in the scriptures. More than just a definition of the word must be known. Now, uh, let me just mention what I mean by that is because we're just going to illustrate some things here as we get started about covenant. You have to know more than a definition of the word covenant. The, the Hebrew word for covenant is berith, B-E-R-I-T-H, which means to cut where blood flows. It's used 280 times in the Old Testament. We'll speak a bit about that at some point. Uh, but it always means to cut. The word covenant literally means to cut where, to the point where blood flows. Uh, there's, it's translated two other ways besides covenant. It's, it's uh, a few times it's translated confederacy. A couple of other times it's translated as a league, like you came into league with one another. But the thing is, you're going to have to know more than definition. How many of you know that you can know a word, you can say a word, but um, not really understand what the word means? It's like when I minister in France, my friends from Bordeaux, I mean, they can teach me a few words in French, 
Uh, maybe Gosha can teach me a few words in Polish. I could say a word, I could say an entire sentence in French, an entire sentence in Polish, but that doesn't mean I'd have any meaning, any, any knowledge whatsoever about what I was saying. In fact, being the strange American that I am, uh, just like this nation, I remember when I came here 20 years ago, 21 years ago now, how different meanings, how strongly some words meant different things in this nation that in America had totally different meanings. I can remember being in conferences and saying a certain word and watching little old ladies in the front row blush and freak out and want to run out. <laughs> and I thought to myself, my God, what have I done? What have I said? And I had no idea until somebody schooled me a little bit later that in England, what I just said was incredibly offensive or, or incredibly funny. I had, I hope you don't think me being rude, but like I had a friend come over once who got up to teach and uh, his name was Randolph, but his nickname, of course, was Randy. And he got up in front of 2,000 people and said, Hi, he said, I'm Randy, and I'm from Oklahoma. Well, I had an entire conference of people in England just blush and crack up and laugh because, of course, there's, all, <laughs> there's just a subtle difference of the meaning of that word over here, to say the least. He had no idea. Nobody in America would con consider the thought of what that word in England means. You can know a word and not have any idea of the weight of the word. You can speak a word. You can pronounce the word. But my favorite illustration when I talk about covenant and why we're going to have to learn some words and learn some definitions as far as <coughs> understanding covenant language is when we talk about what I have here, the difference between the two measurement systems of the inch and the metric system. Now, I grew up in America, and some of you, you've heard me talk about the fact that my dad was a builder. And I grew up all my life, you know, working with my dad around houses and building houses. And my dad used to say, you know, son, just give me an idea of how, like, how wide that window is. And we used to use the phrase to just to eyeball it. He said, just eyeball it and tell me how wide it is. But see, all my life, I've worked with inches and feet and yards. Now, I mean, in England, everybody does work with a metric system, right? I've been here 20 years. I don't know that, right? Right? Or, anyhow. But the point is... All my life, when I see, as far as measurements, I see in feet, or I see in yards. Uh, I mean, I can look at that, I can just look at that, and probably you can do the same thing. You can look at something here, and like they say, guesstimate. You can guess, well, okay, I look at that, and I'd say, that's right about, just over, that's about, the actual window pane of that is about four and a half feet to me, if I was to look at that. Or that picture, maybe, eh, what? You know, it's maybe two and a half feet wide, it's probably two and a half feet square. But what I mean is I see in feet. When I come over here, but when somebody, if somebody asks me, how many meters is that? My mind tilts. Do you understand what I'm trying to say? I don't see in meters. I mean, when you ask me how many meters, I think about those things that are on the, on the, along the street that you put pound coins in. Those are meters to me. You know what I mean? That's, those are not, I don't, I, don't, I, don't, I don't see things in millimeters. I don't see things in centimeters. I don't see things in, in meters. I see things in feet. I see things in yards. Because all of my life, that's what I've grown up with. And I've measured things. And like I said, I can just look around the room and I can estimate the width of something in feet or in meters. But I can't even begin to tell you how what that is in the metric system or what that is in the metric because all of my life I've never seen it that way. Well, the only way I could ever really begin to understand the metric system and be able to have the same ability as I do with, with measuring in feet or in yards is if I was to basically cut myself a stick a meter long, do you know what I mean? And carry that thing with me Everywhere I go, I mean everywhere I go, just carry that meter stick with me and start slapping it up against something until over weeks and months and really realistically it could take who knows how long until I can begin to see because I start to measure with that stick. I measure with the meter stick instead of measure with the yardstick. Now, the reason I bring all that up is because covenant in the Bible, you see there are words like friend. When I say friend to you, you think about somebody that you have coffee with. Most people have no idea what that word means as far as covenant terminology. When you say save, uh, you, you have a little bit idea of what save means, but most people have no real idea. When you say remember, when you say follow, there are words in the Bible that are covenant words that you can quote but until you understand really what they mean, until you understand the depth of the meaning of some of these words, you will never, never 
rightly divide the scripture because the word, for, for example, the word friend in the Bible, again, it is, it is most definitely, it's a covenant, covenant word. To be a friend meant that you were in covenant. To be, I mean, if you sat at a table and had a bite of food with somebody, you entered in the covenant. But there's words that we're going to have to look at again. We're going to have to really consider some things. Now, the first one I've got down here, just like I said, by way of introduction, I've got number one, blood covenants, as I've already re referred to or recorded in all ancient civilizations. This is, listen to the paragraph I wrote. We have gone away from covenants of blood to contracts of ink. Blood covenant people are never, never backstabbers. Now, whether you like this or not, I put, of course, I wrote this years ago, but one of the safest places on earth is in Muslim countries because of this understanding. You won't steal in those nations or you'll die. I mean, there are some things about the structure of how they've grown up all of their lifetime that simply aren't violated. If they are violated, they know that the punishment is very, very strong, isn't it? I mean, to this day, isn't it? In some of those nations, if you steal, they cut your hand off, don't they? Don't they? Yeah. Absolutely, without a shadow of a doubt, because it's just something you don't do, because they've got this thought process, this understanding that's been taught, they're, it's taught to their children from the moment they're able to understand. The Quran is taught to them, they're taught over and over again this stuff until the point is they get to the place that we unfortunately have people that are pervert whatever the you know, that the Quran is today when they get into the fundamentalism to the point that we have all these homicidal maniacs out there. But the point is, blood covenants, a covenant is something that was cut in blood, and like I said, it, it has nothing to do with the contract that's been made with ink. And uh, like I said, you don't steal in those nations. The next paragraph, the more, the more we separate ourselves, now, you got to just work with me tonight, like I said, as we introduce this. The more you separate yourself from blood covenant understanding, the more liars and cheaters, etc., that we will become. Any people who have a strong blood covenant background, Satan does his best to civilize. He does his best to civilize them away from the depth and the strength of what it means to be in covenant until they just make jokes and whatever. If the devil is afraid of you, I said he'll be the death, he'll do, he'll do his very best to civilize you. Now, again, uh, the, the reason I say that is because, uh, well, even in my dad's day, like I said, I keep bringing up my dad. My, I can remember in my dad's day, for example, that when, I mean, and it, was, it was legally binding. If two men shook hands, you know what I mean? If you shook hands on a deal, we're going to build this house. We're going to, if you shook hands and somebody saw you shook hands, that was legally binding in court because that was your word. That was your bond. It was, a, it was a motion that you went into that dictated an agreement. It was a witness to something. Now, like I said, I, I, that's why we're going to look at all these things to how covenants cut, what happens, the exchange of gifts, the exchange of clothes, the exchange of armor, the exchange of weaponry, because you're going to see how the whole Bible is a book of covenant. But the point is, even in my dad's day, I mean, when you shook hands, that was it. It was, the, it, you know, it was called integrity. Anybody ever heard of integrity? It was called, I've given my word. But today, what I'm trying to say is we have been so diluted away from integrity and so diluted away from the depth and the strength of covenant that we make jokes about contracts. People will say, oh, well, you know, contracts are made to be broken. Ha, 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 ha. And again, in those days, that statement, you'd be killed. It's like when America, when, the, when people first, when the pilgrims first came to America and you read the history of how they came from England and they... They met with the American Indians. See, people that you and I call uncivilized are the people who had the greatest knowledge of what covenant was all about. These people came and they gave some, some things. They gave gifts to the Indians. Well, again, if you were to read this book, all through Africa, all through Malaysia, all through the Asiatic countries, all through the Norse countries, the moment peoples came together and exchanged gifts of any kind, it was taken as a statement or as a desire that I want to come into covenant with you. We're going to enter into an agreement so that what you have is mine now and what I have is yours. I mean, covenants were a big, big deal. Like I said, maybe I will read this. Couple. Let, me just, let, me, let me just paraphrase a couple of things. In, in, African na in Asian nations, in African nations, I'm still going to tell my American Indian story. 
If two people came together and entered into covenant, two men, if two men entered into covenant, I mean, this is just as far back as the 18th century. This is in the 1700s. But I mean, and, and it goes back for 23 centuries at least, at least 23 centuries. I mean, as far back. If two men entered into a covenant and they actually made the decision where they made this cut in their hand or the cut in the arm because of the strength where you gave it, give your arm to somebody, that whole thing, and you entered into covenant, your covenant tie was thought to be so strong that, for example, this, this man, say if this man had sisters or had children, I mean, this man couldn't ever marry for sure one of this man's sisters because the tribe would literally consider that to be incest because the moment they became in blood, they were closer than a brother. Uh, you know the scripture, uh, there is a friend that sticks closer than a brother. See, this is what we're going to get to. How many of you have heard this, heard this saying, uh, blood is thicker than water? What do you think, when you say blood is thicker than water, what's the first thing you think of? What is it referring to in your mind? Talk to me. What, what, what does it mean when you say, well, blood, you know what they say, blood is thicker than water. What's it mean? You're talking about family, right? Saying it's totally wrong. It's exactly the opposite of that. Think about it. People say, well, you know what they say, blood is thicker than water. And when you use that phrase, people are normally saying, well, that's my brother or that's my sister or that's my mom or my dad. And of course, I'm going to be closer to them because as they say, blood is thicker than water. Have you ever asked yourself a question? What water are they talking about in that phrase? Blood is thicker than what water? Think about it. Yeah. What it refers to is the water of the mother's womb. And what it's really saying, what that statement really comes from in history, is that when two people enter into covenant, they come into a tie that makes them have a closer relationship than had they been born from the same mother's womb. Blood is thicker than water. Blood is thicker than water. The relationship, if you and I come into blood covenant, the relationship that you and I, that you and I have now, is far stronger and far closer a tie than had we had the same parents. Far stronger. Far stronger. The Arabs say blood is thicker than milk. They call them milk suckers, milk drinkers, but they have exactly the same thing. They say that a blood tie between people that have come into covenant makes you in closer relationship than had you suckled at the same mother's breast. But again, back to American Indians, the Mayflower, these pilgrims, they land, they offer gifts to them, and the American Indians, of course, brought food to them, and they sat down and they had a meal. And again, we're going to see through this. A meal was always what we do in communion on Sundays. We just knock back a bit of grape juice. We knock back a piece of cracker. We have no idea whatsoever what we're really doing. That's why if anybody ever read the 11th chapter, it says, do not do this. Do not do this thing unworthily. Remember? And the word unworthy doesn't say unworthy, it says unworthily. The word means don't, if you do not esteem the value. The word unworthily means to not esteem the value. It says do not drink this cup or eat this, uh, uh, eat this bread unworthily without esteeming the value of it. He says because if you do, you will drink damnation unto yourself. Because when you, every time you drink this cup and you partake of that bread, it says you are provoking remembrance of the Lord's death until he comes again. The whole, and remember, Jesus Christ is the Passover lamb. He was the lamb sacrificed for us. We're in covenant with God through the blood of Jesus Christ. Well, like I'm saying, this thing gets real, real hairy, real touchy. It really does, because this is what I'm trying to say. People have no idea what they're really doing. But anyhow, so the pilgrims, they do all this, and then the pilgrims, they have a meal with the Indians. They give them gifts, the Indians give them stuff. You see, every covenant has blessings and has curses. If we were to read about Stanley, you've heard of Dr. Livingston, who was the great missionary to, to Africa. Now Stanley went on search for him. And again, all these stories are in here. How Stanley went searching for Livingston. And the way Livingston, you'll find out, the way Livingston was so successful all across Africa is because he cut covenant over 158 times. And he had friends, and, every, and what would happen is he'd have somebody represented him, but he'd cut covenant with these chieftains, and in particular this one, this one incredible, they called him a Herculean Mars of a man. I'm recording this. He was 75 years old, this, this ancient warrior chieftain of one of the largest tribes of Africa back in 1865, 70. 
And Stanley had, he suffered a lot from uh, ulcers and he had a goat. And when they traveled through Africa, this goat was his most prized possession because this goat was the milk that he'd have. This milk is the only thing that give him any, any rest from this ulcer. And he needed to go into these other parts of the Congo and these other parts he couldn't get in because they were going to be killed. But he'd learned from this one guide, you need to cut covenant with these people. Because once you cut covenant, it's like, I mean, it's amazing when you read the stories. The people are going to kill you. I mean, they're murdering your people. They're murdering the burden bearers. They're murdering until somebody signals that there's a desire for covenant. And then, boom, instantly all war would cease and a witness or a representative would come from this tribe and a representative would come from Stanley's group and they'd sit down and make a decision and they'd say what would happen and we're going to come into covenant and blood would be, like I said, I'm getting way ahead of myself, but it's all right. They would do, they'd go through these certain actions and in Stanley's case, it was interesting when he finally made this one major covenant and, you know, they cut each other's skin, they put gunpowder and stuff. We're going to read some of this stuff later, but the point is this guy wanted Stanley's goat that's where the phrase from the guy really got my goat. You ever heard that? That comes from the whole thing with Stanley and this, this chieftain in Africa. But the point is, uh, this guy wanted Stanley's goat and they'd given him jewels, they'd given him a couple of all kinds, I mean, uh, beads and stuff that the African natives wanted. But this guy wanted Stanley's goat and he thought, that's crazy. So they wound up giving him tons of stuff and then the guy said, I'm not cutting covenant until you give me that goat. So he gives him this goat. And in return, the only thing this chieftain gives him is this staff that he carried that had this brass wrapped around it. And it was about a five foot, six foot staff with this brass wrapped around one end of it and kind of a spade looking thing on the end of it. And in the stories you read in here, it says Stanley and all the people with him thought, well, <laughs> we've given this guy, you know, buckets of rice, uh, bags of flour. We've given him all kinds of beads, all kinds of stuff, all kinds of linens, all kinds of stuff. You can, and then the guy's taking his goat, I mean, and he gives me a stick. <laughs> and he said, I felt like I'd really been hard done by. But what he didn't know was from that day forward, every single place he went in Africa, when he held that stick up, every other chieftain in Africa knew who that belonged to because this guy was the baddest dude in the block. <laughs> and they, had, they did not want to cross this. His name was Negoyama, N-G-A-L-Y-E-M-A. -E I mean, not that you need to know all that, but it's like I said, it's all in this thing. But that became his passport everywhere he went. When people would come to attack, his guide would hold this rod up and boom, instantly we're best friends. You eat what we want, you can have anything you want, anything you want, anything you want, anything you want, because that represented, they knew this man, this white man's in covenant. He wouldn't have Nogoyama's rod unless he was in covenant with these people because they understood what this giving of gifts meant. And again, I want to keep saying this for the eight hours that we teach this, you're going to get very sick of me saying it. It was absolutely unthinkable for covenant to ever be broken. And any time a covenant was made, like I said, somebody would speak a million, all the blessings that would happen to you, to your tribe for being in this covenant. And he would talk about, he said, he said and they would hurl. And then somebody else would come and they'd talk about a billion curses that would happen to you if you ever broke this thing. And the one that always makes me laugh, they go through this whole giant list and finally says, may your graves be defiled by pigs. You know, anyhow. But the thing is just this strong, strong stuff. Now, I want to get back to, uh, uh, yeah, let me finish a dumb little story about the American Indians. These white folks, of course, they, knowing nothing about covenant, you know, they went and they could have had anything they wanted from the American Indians because they were in covenant with them. But basically, somebody, you know, always messes it up and somebody went and stole something from one of the Indians. Now, you have to understand, in a covenant of blood, on your side of the covenant, Part of the curse would be almost always in ancient things like this. For you to break the covenant means you must die. It's just the way it is. You have to die. It's not personal. It's like the Godfather movie. It's nothing personal. It's just business. It's just, but, but the point is, you have to die. For me to keep the covenant, I have to kill you because you broke the covenant. If I don't kill you, I am breaking covenant. Now you have to understand our tribes, our histories, the value of everything we are depends on 
the truths and the integrities and the rules that we live our tribes by are in are all of who we are. Our identity is tied up in this covenant understanding. For us to break it is unthinkable because it causes us to lose our identity, which is what's happened in the body of Christ today. So these people stole from the American Indians and the Indians, well, and they're thinking it's not personal, it's not being angry, I have to kill you. So they killed him. And, but white people, not knowing about covenant, figured they're, okay, we've been attacked, so the war started, they started killing. And then boom, before you know it, you've got all these wars. But again, if you can just, I'm saying it in such simplistic terms, this is what's happened all through history where people have been covenant breakers. And trust me, we're, today we live in a world that has no knowledge of covenant. They have no care about keeping their word but I got to tell you something, God has never changed. That may be a revelation to some of you, but the word of the Lord says just that, I am God, I change not, doesn't it? Doesn't it? See, in God's word is true. God has sworn himself. It says he's sworn by himself because he can swear by no greater, saying that I will not lie. See, God will never break his covenant. Now, this is why, you know, we're going to teach, like even on Saturdays, I'm going to teach on God's will for healing. But when you begin to get a revelation of what covenant's all about, you'll find that there are some natural byproducts of covenant. What I mean is, if people understood covenant, you wouldn't have to teach faith. Because faith, belief, loyalty, uh, is a natural understanding of it, it's just a natural byproduct of being in covenant because you know that they'll never, ever, 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 ever violate this, this thing that we have between each other. <coughs> of course, I mean, if he has, if, if, this, if this covenant partner, if this person on this side of the covenant has it within, if it's, if it's in his ownership, it's part of, his, part of what he owns, what he has. You see, if I'm in covenant with him, what's his is mine. And what's mine is his. And what I started to say earlier is like all through history when two men, I don't know, you won't like this bit, but when two men were in covenant, let me tell you something. That covenant man coming to your house, everything in that house he could partake of, including your wife. All through history. All through history. That's why before you ever got into covenant, there were long discussions. <laughs> Big time agreements because if you've got it, it's mine. If I've got it, it's yours. That's what covenant is. Now, before you panic, think about, I wonder, could it, could it be, is it even remotely possible that, that God might still think that way today, that if he has it, it's ours? Well, like I said, we're going to look and find out. Like I said, we're going to be looking and finding out. The more we separated ourselves from blood covenant understanding, the more liars and cheaters and swindlers we become. Any people who have a strong blood covenant Background, like I said, Satan will do his best to civilize. If the devil is afraid of you, he'll do his best to civilize you. He'll get you into a humanistic approach uh, in like this false ecumenical spirit stuff. Now, point two, I've referred to, but like I said, the Bible is full of covenant, covenant terminology. We will have to see words in a new light. Like I said, like words like friend, remember, and follow. And we're going to define some of them later on. Not today, not tonight, but later. It's, this is one of the things, and I think I've referred to this in one of the classes that I've done, but God sees, and I really want you to hear this, God sees, God, God sees no difference in the words salvation and healing. God sees no difference in the words salvation and healing in Scripture. The same sacrifice, like I put down here, on the same body, on the same cross, took care of both. When you talk about the redemptive act of God in Christ, you have to, this is, this is again why we, we teach each topic a little bit, but we're going to just start with this point, like I'm saying right here. When God sees the word salvation, it's, it's again, in Schofield's Bible, Schofield is a, was an incredible biblicist, Bible scholar, the words for salvation is the word sozo, S-O-Z-O. And he defined it as, quote, the all-inclusive word of Scripture. He said it was the all-inclusive word of Scripture. It didn't just mean saved. In fact, in Schofields, it defines it as saved, 
healed, blessed, delivered, and preserved. But saved to us means saved. And hopefully, you wouldn't be here unless you weren't a Christian, I would imagine. So do any of you have a problem just saying, I'm saved? Is it easy for you to say? Is it? Yes. I'm saved. Say it with me. I'm saved. I'm saved. saved. It's, it's not hard for you to say at all, is it? Because, and yet you don't know anything. In it. You don't know everything about salvation, but you're comfortable with saying I'm saved, aren't you? Because of the little information that you have and whatever Bible information you have, what you've been taught at your churches and what have you, I'm, I'm saved because of the fact that I believe that Jesus Christ lived a sinless life. He was born of a virgin, lived a sinless life, and, and in obedience to God's will, he went to a cross. He took my sin. He took my sickness. He bore, my, bore it all, and, the, and he died for me. And God raised him from the dead on the third day. I believe that with my heart, confess it with my mouth. Years ago when I first got a hold of this, and I learned this from somebody else. Uh, I mean, they're the ones that taught me this. But he said, you're going to have to understand something. He said, you're going to have to redefine this. He said, if you're going to catch it. He said, you're not just saved. He said, you have to understand when, as I put down here, when God saved you out of the world, you were translated. Remember the Bible says that in Christ you've been translated out of the kingdom of darkness, right? Amen. When he saved you, it says that you were translated out of the kingdom of darkness. Uh, you, were, you were translated out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the Son of His dear love. You were taken out of one thing and ushered into something else. That's what Scripture says, right? The way I like to look at it is like the ocean or like a giant lake or what have you, like I put down here. Let me tell you something. When God saved you from the water... He saved you from anything and everything that would have been in the water that could have hurt you. In other words, listen, when he saved you out of the water, he not only saved you from drowning. See, a lot of people, when they get saved, they think that, you know, the only thing they realize is they feel like, well, I've escaped hell. Well, I've escaped drowning. God saved me. I couldn't swim, so God saved me from the ocean, so now I won't, I, I won't drown. But, but you see, listen, by pulling you out of that water, if there had been a ship sailing towards you, that was going to ram you and kill you, he saved you from that ship. If there was a shark sneaking up on you to bite you and to kill you, to eat you, he saved you from the shark in the water. I don't care what was in the water. When he saved you and pulled you out of that water, remember, he's taking you out of the kingdom of darkness. When he saved you out of that water, he saved you from everything that was in the water. Now, can you, understand, can you just at least patronize me and say amen. 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 <laughs> See, and, and he said, you're going to have to, and all, you've, got, I've, you've built your faith real strong in the fact that you're saved. But he said, in that one word again, salvation means salvation. It means healing. It means preservation, deliverance, safety, like I said. He said, I want you to start saying it differently. Uh, and he had me just start saying, I'm saved healed. In other words, I just put the word healed and tacked it onto the word saved because he was trying to renew my mind to something. He said, I, he said, you've got great faith in being saved. You have hardly any faith on the fact that on the same cross, on the same body, on the same day, with the same sacrifice, not only did I pay for your salvation, not only did I redeem you from your sins, but it says... I redeemed you from your sickness and your disease. Doesn't it? Mm -hmm. Himself took our infirmities and bare our sickness. By his stripes we were healed. All, you know, 1 Peter 2.24, who his own self knew no sin. I'm quoting the wrong scripture. He bore our sin on the tree being that we being dead to sin should live under righteousness by whose stripes ye were healed. I'm not saved. I'm saved healed. In fact, I'm saved healed blessed. Amen. But I had to practice this, and I had to, and it, it took me a long time, and I still have to practice it. I'm saved, healed. Instead of saying saved, I'd be in my own private closet, prayer closet, I'd be walking around. I just, I'm saved, healed. Until it started feeling good. Remember I said we're going to have to start measuring with the new, you, you have to start measuring differently. We're going to have to see words in a different light. I'm not just saved. You're not just saved, my friends. You're saved, healed. Amen. When he Amen. drew you out of that kingdom of darkness, he drew you from anything and everything that Satan had authority of in that kingdom. Amen. 
Now, whether you walk in it or not is another issue, but you see, before you ever walk in it, you're going to have to at least believe what he pulled you out of. But you are saved healed. But see, if, only, if you only see yourself as saved, then that, that little difference is going to make a lot of difference because you're, you're constantly training yourself. In other words, like I said, you all have no problem saying, I'm saved. But if I were to, was to ask you to say, I'm healed right now, some of you would have a difficult time saying it with the same strength, the same fervor, because you'd be thinking, well, but I'm not healed because... I have sickness in my body or I have this pain in my body. Listen, I got pain in my leg right now. Something I'm, I'm fighting, as it were, but I'm still the healed of the Lord. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. See, I'm saved in, I, I don't know if this is going to shock you or not, but there's sometimes I don't necessarily feel saved. Maybe you guys are super saints 24 hours a day. I don't know, seven days a week. I know you are. <laughs> but the point is, I, there are times I don't feel that saved, but I'm saved because I'm under the blood of Christ. Amen. I'm in Amen. covenant. God has brought me into perfect relationship with him by virtue of my faith, not by virtue of my behavior. So I'm saved, healed. I'm saved, healed, blessed. Amen. I'm saved, healed, blessed. I'm saved, healed, blessed. I am saved, I am healed, and I am blessed. I am, because that's who I am. I am that. I am. I am. So again, we're going we're gonna to have to look at this. The same, when God saved you from the water, he saved you from the sharks that were in the water, as I said. Now, just in relationship to that, I've just got about five minutes. I'm gonna, this, is, this will relate to other stuff I've taught, but turn to Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 9 real quick, and I want to read you a verse to, to validate some of what we're speaking to. Hebrews chapter 9. Towards the end of the chapter here. Um, let me just start reading from verse 24. I've got to read quickly because I've only got about three or four minutes, okay? Hebrews chapter 9, verse 24, and again, I'm reading from the Amplified Bible. For Christ the Messiah has not entered into a sanctuary made with human hands, only a copy and a pattern and a type of the true one, but he has entered into heaven itself now to appear in the very presence of God on our behalf. Nor did he enter into the heavenly sanctuary to offer himself regularly again and again as the high priest enters the Holy of Holies every year with blood not his own. Verse 26, For then would he often have had to suffer over and over again since the foundation of the world. But as it now is, he has once, everybody say once. once. He has once and for all at the consummation and close of the ages appeared to put away and abolish sin. He has appeared once. He's done this once. He's not going to go to the cross a second time because the first time was enough. But now as it is, this is the second half of verse 26, he has once for all at the consummation and close of the ages appeared to put away and abolish sin by the sacrifice of himself. Now just stop, ask yourself a question. Was he successful in his mission? Yes. Yes. Do you believe he was successful in his mission? Yes. Yes. Well, what was part of his mission? It says he appeared to put away and abolish sin by the sacrifice of himself. Verse 27, and just as it is appointed for all men once to die, and after that the certain judgment, verse 28, even so it is that Christ, having been, you see that's past tense, even so it is that Christ, having been offered to take upon himself and bear as a burden the sins of many once and once for all, he will appear, now listen, he will appear a second time, but not, everybody say not, not, but not to carry any burden of sin, nor to deal with sin, but to bring to full salvation those who are eagerly, constantly, and patiently waiting for and expecting him. Hallelujah. And why am I reading that? Because I want you to hear this part. He is coming again. He's going to appear again, but the Bible says categorically when he comes the second time, he's not coming to deal with sin. 
Somebody say amen. amen. Why is that important? Because a lot of people still think he's going to come and deal with your sin. He's already dealt with your sin. Oh, it's a hard thing for religious minds to get around because they think it's, it just drives them nuts. He's not going to deal with sin because he's already dealt with it. On the cross, he paid the penalty for sin. All you and I have to do is receive it, receive the forgiveness, receive the grace, receive the peace, receive the healing, and begin to walk in it. And it goes all the way back again to Romans 2, 4, where Paul said, Are you ignorant of the fact that it is the goodness of God that's intended to draw your hearts and minds to repentance? But anyhow, this is where we're going to have to stop for this session right here. Um, again, when God saved you from the water, He saved you from everything that was in the water. He's already dealt with sin. He's already dealt with sickness. Romans 10 says, Do not ask God to come down from above. Do not ask God to come up from beneath because He's already done it. He's not going to come down and heal you. You've got to hear it well. He's not going to come down again to deal with your healing because on the cross He already dealt with your healing. You have to receive your salvation. You have to receive your healing because it's already been paid for. It's in the air right above your head right now. Father, we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. You have reached the end of this lesson. Please insert the next lesson to continue.